First Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, speaking of the husband, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and, not, and are not afraid with any amazement. We ask Heavenly Father that you would bless each of us here this evening and whoever might be listening, bless us with your word. Even though perhaps the illustration is of a Christian lady, may the lesson apply to all of us. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things which made the timing of Jesus' incarnation so exciting is the way the Lord brought a variety of different things together at that moment when the Lord was born. Only when the fullness of time was come did God send forth His Son. There are things like the Greek language which united everybody. And then under the West, in the under Rome, shall we say, the western part of the entire world was united under one government. So Paul, as a citizen of Tarsus, could travel anywhere, for example. And another thing was the building of roads. Roads were not very common before this time. But in order to facilitate the travel of Rome's armies and other uh, um, important officials, Romes were built all the way from uh, England down into Egypt and over into India. Roads were important. It was at that point in time, that point in history, that a proverbial statement became popular. The statement was, all roads lead to Rome. And in a sense, at that time, they did. That's why the roads were built, to lead to Rome. That was their purpose. We still use the phrase from time to time to suggest that eventually all things will come together. We don't use it often, but it's there from time to time. In reality, there is no road in Idaho, there is no road in the United States that will eventually take you to Rome. It just can't happen. But if we modify the proverb just a bit, it becomes perfectly true in its new form. All roads lead to the glory of God. Every road, through every kind of scenery, 
whether we're talking about mountains or coastal roads or roads through the desert, they all glorify the Creator. Creation, even in its fallen and cursed state, I think always glorifies the Lord. And then the salvation of a few unworthy sinners, that glorifies the Savior. And even those that do not come to Christ, the judgment of unworthy sinners, wicked sinners, that also glorifies the Lord because it exalts His holiness. The service of God by His saints magnifies His name. Whether that service is being uh, performed by a preacher or a Christian plumber, it doesn't make any difference. In our scripture, we have an example of this. Especially when we add this picture, this illustration, to those that Peter has already shared with us from chapter 2. All roads lead to God's glorification. Okay, we look back on the verses that we've just finished in, in chapter 2. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Do you remember the context in which that was given? Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You remember the context? Peter was speaking to servants. That was the context. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, just as the Savior was subject to the will of the Father, and he gave himself for our salvation. In this letter, after making his introductions, Peter describes all of God's saints as a chosen generation and a peculiar people. He summarizes his exhortation to all of us by saying, Lay aside your malice and guile, verse number one. Live such a life that in everything you do, you shall glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse number 12. And speaking to all God's saints, he says... Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake means for his glory. And then he turns his attention to the servants, which we could apply to employees. And again, he essentially says, serve your masters for the glory of your Savior. This is acceptable with God. For even Christ Jesus submitted and served, committing himself unto him that judgeth righteously. Now we move to chapter 3. In this chapter, Peter sets his sights on another major group of Christians. Wives, saved by the grace of God. There were very likely a great many women 
whom the Lord had saved, but still they were married to heathen husbands. These are the people that Peter is addressing. The purpose of the exhortation was the same as it was for the servants. The same as it was for all of us generally in the first part of chapter 2. The glorification of Christ. Likewise, just like those servants, likewise ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands. He says, just as I have exhorted servants to be submissive, I exhort you Christian wives to submissively Serve your husbands so that they may be one to Christ by your chaste conversation. The words chaste, the word chaste, refers to purity. You might say uh, clean living. You might say modest living. The word conversation, by your chaste conversation, shouldn't be confined to don't talk back, don't uh, uh, ridicule, don't criticize, don't na uh, nag. That's not what it's talking about. The word conversation, as it usually does in the Word of God, refers to someone's entire way of life. Your entire life. <clears throat> Live your lives in such a way that will draw your, the attention of your husband toward the one who has saved you. Glorify the Lord through your Christian living. That is just what he had earlier said to the saints in general. And that is what he's more specifically said to the servants. And that is what he will say to the Christian husbands in the next paragraph. Every pathway of life leads to the glory of God. And every Christian traveler down those roads or paths should strive to glorify their Savior. In these modern days of changing social mores, there are a lot of women who dislike what Peter is saying here. They seem to think that this somehow demeans them. But Peter is saying nothing about their character and he's not saying anything about their position in the sight of God. There have been, there always will be, families where the women are more, are more godly than their husbands. Just as there, there were undoubtedly servants who are more godly than their masters. One example of a godly lady would be Abigail, the wife of Nabal. So many of us, including men, have been caught up in various degrees of the women's liberation movement. Forgetting that salvation includes a very special liberation, some women lash out at what the apostles say about their gender and their responsibilities. 
Those ladies need to recognize that Peter uses the same word in exactly the same way in 1 Peter 2.13 when speaking not to ladies, but to all Christians, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's glory. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his parents. It's the same Greek word. We have his example. Paul tells the church in Corinth to submit to the pastoral leadership that God had given them. Chapter 16, verse number 16. It's the same Greek word. Peter says generally in chapter 5, Likewise, ye younger Christians... Submit yourselves unto the elder. In fact, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace grace to the humble. The primary reason why people refuse to submit to the Lord's exhortation about submitting is pride. Is pride. So James says... God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James 4, 6, and 7. Before Paul tells wives to submit to their own husbands, as Peter does right here, he says in Ephesians 5, 21, to all of us, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We're all supposed to Submit. I am commanded by God to be submissive as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a Christian. I am commanded to submit to various authorities. Christian ladies should not be offended when they're told to submit to their own husbands. Remember, the details of our lives should be lived in such a way as to glorify the Savior. One of the goals in the way we live should be to point people to Christ, to Calvary. And that's why these Christian wives should submit themselves unto their husbands, whether they are Christians or not Christians. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, not other husbands, but your own husbands, that they may behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. What kind of fear, Peter? The apostle then gives us an example of Sarah. Is there any evidence that Sarah was afraid of Abraham? Did he ever threaten her with physical violence? Was there abuse? Do we have any record that she was a battered wife? I admit there are things about that couple which disturb me. And it probably should every Christian. There are things in that family which are shameful in my estimation. And we don't have a great deal of information about their day-to-day domestic lives. But I don't detect any kind of fear in Sarah, except if we define the word in the sense of respect. It's not true of all husbands, but it appears to be that Abraham earned 
his wife's respect, not fright. In that context, Peter speaks about the attire of Christian ladies, including Sarah. Who's adorning? Let it not be the outward adorning of plating of the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Peter is not telling women not to put on apparel, is he? I think he's expecting these ladies to wear clothes. Everyone must wear some sort of clothing, some sort of apparel. And most people, nearly all women, have hair. And something has to be done with that hair. If nothing more than comb it every once in a while. Peter isn't telling Christian ladies to cut off their hair so they won't be tempted to make it outlandishly ornate, plating it. What he is saying is, since our bodies are only the outward containers of our souls and spirits, let's not focus first and foremost on these bodies. It's the inner man. It's the meek and quiet spirit that's important. Dress modestly. Keep your hairstyle reasonable. And don't try to impress people with your jewelry. When Samuel was looking for the second king of Israel, Austin referred to this on Sunday. The Lord said unto him, Look not on this man's countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Remember, the Lord looks on our hearts, not our outward appearance. What Peter is saying about women, he could have said about men. But in their case, the reverse would usually be more appropriate, at least if he was in our world today. It's not that men overdress, plating their hair and wearing jewelry. I think it's more that they underdress, particularly when they come to the house of God. They refused to recognize that God's Old Testament priests were told to dress up when they went into the house of God and that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Treat them as such. Peter says, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. The reason many Christian men care very little for their outward appearance is because the hidden man of the heart isn't what it ought to be, where it ought to be. I have seen husbands who would demand that their wives wear a skirt to church, but they wouldn't dress up to go to church even though they're sitting beside them. Something's wrong there. Well, that's just the way things are in casual North Idaho. Maybe that's not the way it's supposed to be in casual North Idaho. Maybe we should set new standards. Neither Peter nor Paul are opening the doors to double standards. 
The women have to dress properly, the men don't have to. They're not saying that sort of thing. A meek and quiet spirit are to be found in both Christian men and Christian women. Peter gives us the example of Sarah. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, I have a hard time explaining and justifying all the aspects of the Abrahamic uh, home life. Some of it makes sense, I can see. For example, uh, it appears that Sarah had her, only, her own tent, her own bedroom, if you like, while Abraham had his. I can see that, I suppose. Reading Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, all the way to 23, where we have the, the life of Abraham, it appears to me that that man sincerely loved his wife, Sarah. He told before I get to that next point, I think he loved Abraham more than he loved Sarah, but he loved Sarah. He told his wife, I want you to deceive Pharaoh. That was a disaster. And still later on he said, Sarah, I want you to, to deceive Abimelech. I want you to tell these men that you are my sister. Which isn't a lie, because she was, but it was deceptive because she was more than his sister. She was his wife, and that's what he was trying to cover up. Say that, uh, I, am, say, say that I am your brother. It's obvious to me that he was telling his wife to do this for the sake of his own neck. And I don't condone that. Can't. Later on, when it appeared that Sarah would not be able, it appeared that Sarah would not be able to give Abraham a son, he went out and became a polygamist. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Sarah to submit herself to all the whims of her husband? I want you to lie. When... It didn't look like it was going to be good in any way, shape, or form for either one of them. But she did it. And she was a part of the taking of the second wife. If any woman had a right to rebel against her husband, Sarah could find a reason to do that. But she didn't. She did what she was told. She went wherever he went. She did and said what he told her to do and to say. I think it's interesting that Peter referred to the fact that Sarah called Abraham her Lord. I say it's interesting because at least as recorded in the word of God, it only occurred once. But he remembered that. He puts it in his letter here. But it was said in such a way as to make it appear natural and not uncommon. I've known some married couples who addressed each other as husband and wife. Husband, what do you want for supper? And he would refer to his wife as wife. 
And it was all done uh, with utmost respect for one another. It was just the way they did it, and uh, it was relatively common. I've also read of other couples, never met one, that uh, the man referred to his wife as uh, uh, Mrs. Smith, and she referred to her husband as Mr. Smith. It's just the way they did things. That's okay. It seemed natural to them. In Genesis 18, the pre-incarnate Christ and a couple of his angels came to visit Abraham and Sarah. They came to inform the man that despite their very old bodies, Abraham and Sarah would be given the son that God had promised much, much earlier. When Sarah heard it, she laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, my husband also being old? These words were not spoken out loud. They were just in the back of her mind, and it just indicates that to call Abraham her Lord was just what she did. It seemed perfectly natural. Even though it's the only time it's mentioned, it seemed to be, it seemed to reveal the attitude of her heart. I believe that she loved her husband. It's one of the reasons why she did these things that uh, she might not have done otherwise. She made him the Lord's representative in her heart and in her life. And Peter says, go and do likewise. You ladies will be the daughters of Sarah when your hearts are like Sarah's heart, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Peculiar language. One of my commentaries explains the last clause as, don't let your heart flutter over what your husband says. In other words, trust the Lord and do what he says to do, what your husband tells you to do. It's that husband who God holds responsible for the family decisions. Lady, you don't have to worry about that. It's the husband who must follow the Lord's direction. Wife, don't let your heart flutter too badly about these things. Just do your best to bring glory to the Lord. Laying aside some of the details, the primary point of this paragraph is to keep first things first. The primary point is to live our lives focused on bringing glory to the Lord. However, that can be done. Christians married to unsaved husbands will clearly have a difficult time in doing this. They perhaps must be more diligent than the Christian wife who's married to the Christian husband. But if they will strive to live godly, the Lord will be pleased with them. And it could very well be, verse number one, that the life that this Christian lady is living will be used by the Lord to bring him to Christ. And that should be her desire. That's what the Christian life is all about, no matter who we are in this world, what our position might be.